Hey, turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis 48. That's on page 41 of the Bible underneath the seat. Friends, for the last few weeks, I have flagged today as the, as the closing of our Genesis series. And I had every intention this morning of preaching chapters 48 through 50 in their entirety. But as I got into my study this week, I realized that if I did that, it probably would not be a satisfactory end to the series and given the amount of ground we'd have to cover. And so like Peyton Manning surveying the defense, I am calling an audible at the line of scrimmage. We are going to go through verse 14 of chapter 50 uh, this morning, and then we will finish up Genesis on August 15th uh, since Josh is going to be with us next week. Our text this morning is Genesis 48, 1 through 50. 14. And if you're new with us, I imagine that our text this morning might be a little confusing unless you understand where we've been in Genesis. So I want to take a few minutes here in a longer introduction to the sermon to give you a flyby of the book of Genesis. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we learn of a God who is entirely free and independent and good and who created the world out of the overflow of his goodness. And God created humanity as the pinnacle of his creation. As bearers of God's very image, we were created to be kings and queens on the earth, to rule God's creation on behalf of our great, our great creator, King. Friends, God did not create us to be autonomous, but rather to be rightly related to him as obedient sons and daughters, to worship and enjoy him in paradise. But tragically, it all unraveled, didn't it, in Genesis 3. Our original parents rebelled against their king after being seduced by a snake embodied by Satan, the enemy of God. Adam and Eve coveted God's throne and they lusted after an autonomous life. They questioned God's goodness and disobeyed his command. And the, their original sin plunged humanity into an existence for the rest of history in sin and death. For the rest of time, every human being born in Adam is corrupted by sin and stands guilty before God. And the world in which we live as sinners is under the curse of death, the consequence of our rebellion. And yet even in judgment the Lord gave Adam and Eve a word of surprising hope, didn't he, in Genesis 3. God promised a day was coming when a descendant of the woman would crush the serpent's head, even though that serpent would, would wound, would, would bruise the heel of the descendant of the woman. We call this the proto-gospel, the first mention of the gospel, the good news in the Bible. A conquering king would come who would deal a death blow to Satan and defeat death and reverse the curse and restore the world to as God intended it to be. And really the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible traces out the unfolding of this great promise in Genesis 3.15. Even as the world continued to descend further into depravity and violence, God preserved the line of promise, the seed of the woman. The line of promise narrowed from Adam to Seth and eventually to Noah, through whom God preserved humanity when he judged mankind's wickedness in a global flood. God's promises continued to narrow from Noah to his son Shem and to eventually a Shemite named Abraham, whom God called out of Mesopotamia to journey in the land of Canaan. And like with Noah, God made a new start with humanity through Abraham. In his covenant with Abraham, God promised Abraham three major things, and, a, and really kind of a fourth if you count the great name. He said, I'm going to give you an offspring. Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the stars of the sky, and that Abraham would become a great nation. 
He promised Abraham land, that this great nation would dwell in the land that God would give them. And then he promised them blessing. This nation of Abraham's offspring would be so blessed by God that they might then bless the nations of the world. And ultimately, God promised that one of Abraham's offspring would bless the nations particularly and bring that skull-crushing promise of Genesis 3.15 to pass to save the world. Well, the rest of Genesis really is the unfolding of the promises of these promises in the lives of Abraham's family. In his life, and his son Isaac, Isaac's youngest son, Jacob. And of course, these last 14 chapters of Genesis slow down even more, haven't they, to, to explain how the Abrahamic promises is going to be put in motion by Joseph. By Joseph, Jacob's second youngest son. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. And yet it's through that very suffering and exaltation that God would raise Joseph into power and put him in a position to both rescue Egypt and rescue his family from death by famine. Did you get all that? Last week, we saw the conclusion of the primary action of the story. Jacob and his family migrated from Canaan to Egypt. God promised to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant of a great nation and numerous offspring, surprisingly, in Egypt. And of course, we know that the people of God would stay in Egypt for over 400 years, be afflicted and enslaved until the day that God would rescue them and set them free and return them to the promised land through the great exodus. And that brings us to the epilogue of the story. We arrive at Genesis 48 this morning. We're going to read all of Genesis 48, and then we'll read 49 later in the sermon. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the, in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, these are, are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and bowed himself with, uh, with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. 
And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, it's not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall be, also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations." So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Have you ever thought as you're reading through scripture or perhaps studying church history, man, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for that event or that conversation. Yeah, for me, I, it's, I would have loved to have eavesdrop on Jesus's conversation on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall there. But here in Genesis, I, I think we are given fly-on-the-wall access to an incredibly intimate moment in redemptive history. The patriarch Jacob is on his deathbed. And what we just read is one of his last conversations on earth with his son Joseph and with Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, perhaps, friends, as we read this, you thought to yourself, what in the world is going on here? And how could it possibly be relevant to me Today, we'll just wait till you get to 49. You'll think that even more, perhaps. But friends, Genesis 48 and 49 should arrest your attention. There should be no yawning about this passage. And here's why. Because we're not just flies on the wall, so to speak, for a random conversation between an old geezer and his sons. We are given the privilege to listen in to one of the pivotal moments in all of history. And it's our family history. What we're studying today is part of your story and part of my story by grace. The content of these chapters really do help launch the rest of the God's story of redemption in the Old Testament. They unpack for us a bit more of how God intends to redeem humanity and fulfill his ancient promise to make all things right. Here's the main idea of Genesis 48, 49, the beginning of 50. Here's the main idea. Put your trust in the death-defying promises of God, secured by the conquering king. That'll preach. Put your trust in the death-defying promises of God, secured by the conquering king. Friends, my outline points today are just summary statements of what I think is the primary takeaway of both chapters 48 and 49. Number one, death is not the end. Hallelujah. And number two, the king is coming. Death is not the end, and the king is coming. Upon hearing news that his father was ill, Jacob took his oldest sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him to see his father and to be blessed 
by him. In verse 2, here's this, this weak, sick, fragile, near-death Jacob summoning his strength to sit up in bed. And what happens next is just astounding. In verses 3 and 4, Jacob recalls God's appearance to him at Luz. That's the city that eventually he called Bethel. This was when God introduced himself to Jacob through the dream of the angels ascending and descending on the, on the stairway between heaven and earth. It was there that God assured Jacob that the promises that he made to Abraham would indeed be Jacob's. That Jacob would be fruitful and multiply and become a company of peoples and would inherit the land for an everlasting possession. Why did Jacob mention that to Joseph and his sons on his deathbed? Well, he's, he's clarifying his authority to give this blessing to Joseph and his sons. Jacob is not acting, friends, as a normal grandpa praying for his children or even uh, your ordinary run-of-the-mill believer. No, he is a patriarch. God had appeared to him personally multiple times. Jacob had encountered God Almighty at Bethel and at Peniel. And once again, on the way down to Egypt, this man had encountered the living God. And so his blessings in chapter 48 and 49 are not merely hopes or well wishes or educated guesses. They are prophetic blessings. God had communicated to him what would take place. And now Jacob is God's conduit of blessing to his family and to all the people of God through the ages. This is blessing for you and me. Notice what Jacob does first. Verse five says that he adopted Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Wait, what? <laughs> Can you imagine uh, having this conversation with your father? Hey, sons, uh, your sons are now mine. Uh, no, dad, <laughs> they're still mine. Thanks, appreciate it, right? How do you think that conversation will go with your wife afterwards? <laughs> Honey, you won't believe what dad did, right? <laughs> he claimed the boys, I tried to protest, but he insisted. Beloved, this pronouncement of adoption is not a slight Toward, toward Joseph. It's an honor. Jacob is including Joseph's sons, half Israelite, half Egyptian, as full recipients of God's covenant blessing. They're the full-on people of God by adoption. There's just so many things that we could say about this theme alone in the Bible, isn't there? Right? But what is the significance why would Jacob do this? Well, hold your finger in Genesis and turn very quickly to 1 Chronicles 5. 1 Chronicles 5, that's on page 337 of your, your, your seat Bible. The chronicler, hundreds of years later, is listing the ancestry of Reuben. And look what he says in verse 1. 1 Chronicles 5, 1. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his, among his brothers and became a chief among them, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. In other words, friends, Reuben forfeited the right, the birthright to the double portion inheritance that belonged by right to the firstborn through his sexual immorality with Bilhah, Jacob's wife. 
And now Jacob is giving to Joseph this double portion and he's distributing it in half to Manasseh and to Ephraim. So that throughout redemptive history, you don't really see a tribe of Joseph at all, do you? You see the tribes of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh. Well, if that wasn't unexpected enough, look at what Jacob did in verses 8 to 20. Joseph brought his sons to Jacob and he positioned them with Manasseh, the oldest on the left, toward Jacob's right hand, and Ephraim on the right toward Jacob's left hand. Well, obviously Joseph knew the custom. Manasseh was the oldest son and it was customary in the culture to give the firstborn the greatest inheritance or blessing. We just talked about it. But then according to verse 14, Jacob, instead of of setting his, his right hand on Manasseh, the older's head, and his left hand on Ephraim, the younger's head, he crisscrossed his hands, didn't he? He prayed the prayer of blessing with his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. And according to verse 17, it, it displeased Joseph because he thought his father, who clearly his sight was failing him, he couldn't see very well, had accidentally done this. He got confused. He thought they were in reverse order. Look at verse 18. Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. What do you think, I'm blind or something, (laughs) right? He shall become a people and he also, also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Wow. So Jacob here is carrying out the same principle of election that we saw active in his life. When before his birth, before he or Esau had done good or evil, God told Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. This has been God's pattern throughout Genesis, hasn't it? God accepted younger Abel's sacrifice, not Cain's. He chose the younger Isaac as the child of promise, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. And now by faith, Jacob recognizes, well, this is how God works in the world, isn't it? And he blesses Ephraim, not Manasseh. Ephraim is chosen to be the leader, and so he would become. Friends, Joshua, who led the conquest of the land of Canaan, was an Ephraimite. And after Solomon's death, when the kingdom divided, the tribe of Ephraim would dominate the northern tribe of Israel so much that the prophets often referred to the northern kingdom as Ephraim. Friends, again, once again again in Genesis, we are confronted with a God who is free to operate how he wills and choose whom he wills and pass over whom he wills. Friends, God's way often confounds our expectations and frustrates our agendas. His ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. He is sovereign, he is free, and he is gracious. And praise be to God, like Ephraim, we have an inheritance among the saints through Christ Jesus our Lord, and it is holy by his mercy alone. We didn't earn it by right, it was given to us by grace. Now, I haven't really said too much yet that would indicate why I summarized this chapter with the phrase, death is not the end. Well, notice the content of Jacob's prayer in verse 15. 
And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, my life long to this day. By the way, that's the first mention of God as shepherd in the Bible. The angel who's redeemed me from all evil. Clearly, this is a, a reference to the angel of God who wrestled with Jacob in the night and blessed him at Peniel. This is no ordinary messenger. This is God himself. May this shepherd, may this redeeming angel bless the boys and let in them let my name be carried on and let the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So here's Jacob. He's staring death in the face. He's getting ready to walk into eternity. And what does he do? He blesses Joseph by blessing Joseph's sons. Why? So that in Ephraim and in Manasseh, his name and Isaac's name and Abraham's name might be carried on. So that the promises of God to the patriarchs might be remembered through Joseph's sons. That they might fulfill the promises by growing into a great multitude. In other words, friends, Jacob fully expected God's promises to be fulfilled after his death. He blessed the boys in faith that God's promises extend beyond the grave. Did you notice our call to worship this morning? When the author of Hebrews lists the great exploits of the people of God who lived by faith, this is the moment he lists for Jacob. Not his encounter with God at Bethel or his wrestling match at Peniel or his vision of God on the way to Egypt. Not his journey back from Padan Aram or his reconciliation with Esau. No, what Hebrews acclaims as Jacob's paramount demonstration of faith was his deathbed blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh and his bowing in worship over the head of his staff, which seems to combine, I guess, this moment with his request to Joseph that he be buried in the land of Canaan. We saw that back in chapter 47. Why? Why? Well, surely... Surely there's something more notable than this, right? Surely the, the author of Hebrews could have come up with something a little bit more exploitive, right? A little bit more to be celebrated. Surely there's an act of, of Jacob more like crossing the Red Sea or those who by faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice and obtained promises and stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire and escaped the edge of the sword and were made strong out of weakness and became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Surely Jacob did something like that. No. By faith, he blessed the sons of Joseph. Friends, we're meant to see Jacob's physical weakness as the context for the strength of his faith. And on that day, when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending 10,000 years and then forevermore. Here's Jacob banking on a God who would keep his promises to him even after death. Friends, this is the point of verses 21 to 22 also. He tells Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and he will bring you again to the land of your fathers. God's promised it. It's going to happen. And then verse 22, moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with the sword and my bow. Hey, Jacob, don't you know Joseph basically owns Egypt? 
He has all the wealth they could ever want. And you're offering him a hillside in Canaan? No. Don't forget it. You own a piece of the promised land. It's faith that extends beyond the grave. Never forget is at the graveside service of my grandmother who died in 2012 from Alzheimer's. I was walking to the gravesite with my grandfather, who at the time I think was 90. He died when he was 96. We're walking up to the gravesite, and unbeknownst to me, he had already selected a grave of his own and had already had it etched his name. And he looked down at, and kiddingly he said, Hey, look, John. It's my last shot. And sure enough, there under his name, John Jack Diedrich was a, a basketball, going through a basketball hoop. My grandfather had been a basketball coach for 30 years. He was a successful coach, retired as the second winningest high school coach in Florida history. He had built his life around the game of basketball in many ways, even though he was a, a solid Christian. And he leaned over, and in this poignant moment, getting ready to have the graveside service for his wife, he said, ah, oh, I wish I had not put that on my graves. I wish I hadn't put that there. It just doesn't matter that much, does it? Friends, whatever your hope is in life, that it will be in death. As the closer my grandfather got to that moment that he would pass into eternity, the more he realized that those pursuits although worthy on earth, not discounting what he did. I'm proud of him for what he did. He's proud of what he accomplished. Those pursuits ultimately don't matter in light of eternity. We don't like to think a lot about death, do we? Our culture has created whole industries to keep us from thinking about death. Billions of dollars are spent each year by people trying to slow aging or to look like they're not aging. Even when we do die, we make people look as non-dead as humanly possible, don't we? But as friends, as much as we might want to avoid the topic, death is inescapable. And perhaps instead of avoiding thinking about the topic, we ought to let the reality of death sober us. Perhaps the reality of the grave ought to motivate us to set our hope and order our lives around the promises of God that lie beyond it. To fix our hearts, not on the riches of Egypt, not on the American dream, not on the cushy retirement, but on the glorious inheritance that awaits us. Beloved, a hope that extends beyond the grave will radically reshape your life toward the things of heaven. So let it. Let it turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. At the end of chapter 49, Jacob dies. And in chapter 50, he's mourned and he's buried in Canaan. It's not at all, chapter 50 is not at all an insignificant portion of scripture, but for time's sake, and because we'll look at something very similar next week with Joseph's death, we'll not cover it in detail today. But all of these details, chapter 40, chapters 48 and the beginning of 50, all of these details are like a billboard shouting the same message. Death is not 
the end. There's reality beyond the grave. Friends, the promises of God to us do not end when our lives do. Hallelujah. They extend beyond death and they secure for us a resurrection life in the promised land, not in Canaan, in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Number two, the king is coming. Let's turn our attention to chapter 49. After blessing Joseph's sons in chapter 48, Jacob blesses his 12 sons in chapter 49. And he does so basically in, in their birth order, apart from placing Zebulun before Issachar. Remember, as I said earlier, Jacob is operating prophetically here. In verse 1, he said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. So friends, clearly Jacob did not just look at his son's character and then formulate a hypothesis about what might happen to them. Rather, he understands that his words will shape what will happen in days to come. That phrase days to come is translated as the latter days or the last days later in the Old Testament. Even as we go through these blessings, I think we ought to just stand in awe that the Lord of history is our Lord. He knows the future. And he is the one whose word is sure and authoritative. Look at verse 2. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Yes, Dad, yes, yes. What shall you give me? Unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Oh. Well, perhaps things will be better with the next two sons. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Obviously, he's referring here to their vengeful massacre at Shechem. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel." Friends, those, those gruesome details that Jacob just summarizes were laid out for us in Genesis 34. And Moses laid them out without editorial comment. But now it's clear how wrong those actions of the brothers were. Jacob says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And sure enough, friends, once Israel conquered the land, Simeon just disintegrated into Judah's land allotment. Well, the Levites, as the priests, were given an honorable disbursement. They lived, they were divided among 48 cities spread throughout the land of Israel. Let's skip down to verse 13. Let's skip over Judah for now. Down to verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the, sh the shore of the sea. Say that five times fast. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be... At Sidon, well, Zebulun's land allotment indeed was near the Mesopotamia, uh, the Mesopotamia, the Mediterranean Sea, where they benefited materially from the sea trade. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. And so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Well, it's hard to know exactly what Jacob foresees in this oracle, but it seems to imply that to remain in his fertile territory, Issachar as a tribe would submit to foreign lordship. And during the 8th to 6th centuries, Issachar was indeed subject to occupying forces. 
Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backwards. The name Dan is actually a play on the Hebrew word for judge. Samson, one of the judges of Israel, was a Danite. And yet despite Dan's influence and success, at times Dan act, acted like a snake. Like in Judges 18, when after a great victory over the Philistines, the Danites established an idolatrous cult. The image of a snake biting the heels recalls the garden, doesn't it? Genesis 3.15. This serpentine image and the calamity that Jacob is foreseeing for his descendants causes him to cry out in verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Salvation, help, rescue, deliverance will not come by the devices of his children or by foreign assistance, but is only found in the Lord. Verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. One day Gad would be situated in the land between the Moabites to the south and the Ammonites to the east and the Aramaeans to the northeast. And since they had to fight to survive, the Gadites became renowned warriors. This is probably what Jacob is referring to. Verse 20, Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Asher's fertile land was in Galilee, the land of olive trees and vineyards. Verse 21, Naphtali is a dose let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Yeah, I got basically nothing on that one. <laughs> Not quite sure. Perhaps this highlights Naphtali's uh, unrestricted northern frontier where uh, the tribe was free to roam and had abundant material, natural resources. Not quite sure. Let's skip down to verse 27. Benjamin is a, a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Again, this seems to indicate that mighty warriors would come from Benjamin's tribe. Well, that's 10 brothers so far, isn't it? And let's be honest, what Jacob pronounces over six of them don't sound like blessing at all. Can you imagine, right? You gather around the deathbed of your dad who just happens to be a patriarch whose prophetic pronouncement will shape your very future and you wait on pins and needles for him to, to grant you wealth or status or land and instead you hear things like, you're unstable as water. You're going to be divided and scattered. Raiders shall raid your land. It's going to be great. Gee, thanks a bunch, Dad, right? Sounds like a great inheritance. Friends, why after these oracles can verse 28 say that Jacob blessed each of his sons when clearly some of them received these hard consequences? Friends, might it have to do with the fact that they are included as tribal heads of God's covenant people despite their sin? Let's face it, which one of them is without fault in the Genesis story? Maybe Joseph, maybe Benjamin, but by and large, these men were wicked sinners and God's inclusion of them to play such a crucial role in the history of redemption is a shocking display of his grace and mercy. Let's notice now Jacob's blessing of Joseph. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. This seems to be a, 
a play on Ephraim's name, which remember means fruitful. Joseph is going to be abundantly fruitful. It's the the language of Eden to describe him. He's going to be like a, a tree planted by rivers of water, like Psalm 1. He was a fruitful man, even in the midst of intense suffering. The archers bitterly attacked him shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. What Jacob makes clear, doesn't it? Where did Joseph's ability to withstand betrayal and affliction and harassment come from? It was because God, the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the rock of Israel was Joseph's strength. How could Joseph persevere in trial, friends? God was with him. By the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the boundaries of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Did you notice the common word? I could be wrong. <laughs> I'm not a, a Hebrew scholar, but it sounds like Joseph is the recipient of God's blessing. What do you think? Friends, obviously, as we were going through, I skipped over Judah. I want us to make a quick pivot from Joseph to Judah, not because Joseph's unimportant. We've been studying him now for 14 chapters. But I think you know why I skipped over Judah. All right, here comes the Jesus closer. Amen? You're right. Friends, let's remember, up to this point in the story, there's no indication that anything remarkable will come from Judah. He was the man formerly marked by wickedness and lust and greed, whom God had transformed to become a trusted man of integrity among his brothers. But still, right? It's still, if you were to pick one of the brothers that would carry on the line of promise, if, you're, if you were to play any, mini, miny, mo, who's going to be the king in the future? Would you land on Judah? No, you would land on Joseph. He's going to be the, 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 the tribal head of the savior to come, the king who's coming. Surely you would have picked Ephraim, right? Ephraim, whom Jacob had set had given the primary uh, inheritance in the birthright, the favored son. But whereas Joseph receives the birthright of land, it seems that Judah receives the birthright of leadership, of kingship. Look at verse 8. Judah means praise. Praise, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Why is Judah going to be praised? He's going to be praised among his family. Why? Because of his authority and his victory over his enemies. His hand is going to be on the neck of his enemies. It sounds like the one who's going to crush the head of the snake, doesn't it? It sounds like Judah's son who put his hand on Goliath and cut off his head, right? Jacob describes Judah as the lion tribe, as the strongest and most powerful beast who returns successfully from snagging its prey. It's, it's a symbol, it's a royal symbol of a conquering king. Verse 10, 
Now it's made explicit. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Well, he's now getting more specific, isn't he? Judah's tribe is destined to produce kings. The scepter won't depart from him, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. It's a euphemism for the descendant of Judah who's going to rule as king. Notice when will this happen? This will happen until tribute comes to him. Now, friends, just got to be honest. This is a notoriously difficult Hebrew phrase to translate. You'll notice the ESV footnote at the bottom, the alternate reading, until he comes to whom it belongs. For reasons that I can share afterward, if you really want to know, I think that's likely the right translation, until he comes to whom it belongs. And what would be the point? What Jacob would be saying, that that kings will come from Judah's line until one particular king comes to whom the scepter truly belongs. And to this great king will be the obedience, not just of Israel, but of the peoples of the world. Friends, this oracle by Jacob sets the messianic expectation of the rest of the Bible. We know that King David came from the tribe of Judah. And the Lord promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that his offspring would sit on David's throne forever and rule with an everlasting dominion and kingdom that has no end. So for putting these pieces together of the redemptive story, we understand by this point in Genesis, 745 years, 1745 years before the coming of Jesus, Jesus, that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. And notice what this great king will do. Verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine, In his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Friends, this king's reign will be so abundant, so lavish, so extra, right? That it won't be anything for him to hitch his donkey to the choicest vine in the vineyard. It's okay if the donkey eats the grapes. I got more to go around. It's no problem. Got more where that came from. So extravagant is this king's reign that it's as if he uses wine to wash his clothes. It's like the best wine flows like water under the king's reign. Kind of like what happened at a wedding in Cana of Galilee in John 2. Friends, do you see this? The King Messiah will so utterly conquer his enemies that his reign will be one of unhindered abundance and joy and restoration of the, and a return to the fertility of Eden. Nothing will be able to get in the way of the abundance that he's going to bring. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found, Right? I resisted the temptation to sing joy to the world this morning. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the wonders of his love. But friends, I skipped over one phrase intentionally at the beginning of this oracle. Look at verse 8. Notice what it says of Judah. 
your father's sons shall bow before you. Now, what does that sound like? What does that sound like? It sounds a lot like Joseph's dreams. Sounds a lot like what his brothers did when they came down to Egypt. They bowed before him. So Jacob wants us to see an intentional similarity between the two brothers. Friends, if you want to know what is this coming king from Judah going to look like? Here's the clear answer. According to Genesis 49.8, he's going to look like Joseph. He's going to be a king who righteously suffers, who is humiliated in suffering, and then rises to exaltation so that he might bless the nations. You wonder why all throughout this series I've been interpreting the Joseph story typologically and comparing the patterns that we see in Joseph to Jesus. This is why. Because Jacob did it. And Moses recorded it. Our friend, this lion from the lion tribe, the lion from the tribe of Judah is going to look like a lamb that's been slain. Our Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah and God, he did not conquer by brute force or by the power of empires, he conquered by giving his life for his people. He crushed the head of our ancient foe by absorbing on the cross the curse of death and the wrath of God that we deserved. How did he conquer? Well, he stripped death of its power by rising in vindication and triumph over the grave. And then he ascended to the highest place and through the word of his gospel is now blessing the nations. And one day he'll come back. And he'll make all things right. And the wine is going to flow like water. Friend, let me put this together for you. The only way that you can know and experience what God intended for you in the beginning is to be rightly related to this king. Here's the deal. You and I are just like Adam. We think that life, true life, is found in our autonomy. It's the anthem of our world. I did it my way. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm going to discover my true self, and then I'm going to create my own reality based on that discovery, and nobody better tell me different or try to stop me. But friend, the word that you need to hear today is, is that self-created faux autonomy that looks so appealing to you. It will not bring you life at all. Rather, it enslaves you and it leads you to death. And deep down, I think you know this. I think you know that nothing in this world can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart and soul. It's impossible because of the reality of death. Nothing in this world can satisfy because of death because you can't take it with you. It's all temporary. We need a hope and a satisfaction that lasts beyond the grave. We need to be connected by faith to a conquering king who conquered death itself. We need to be reconciled to God and restored to the life that he intended you to have in the beginning. 
Jesus said it this way, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, it's only by being rightly related to King Jesus that you can be then related to your creator and receive the life that he created you to have. Strangely, it's by giving your life away, by turning from your pride and your autonomy to him, to his rule, to his gracious reign, that true life is found. Friend, if you'll come to Jesus this morning, if you'll trust in his sin-bearing sacrifice and you'll confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, you'll know the truest of life. You'll know the truest of life right now and you will receive a hope that extends beyond the grave. Not because you've done anything, but because you're united by faith to Jesus, the lion from Judah's tribe who conquered death forever. Let's pray. Father, we so want to position our hearts and position our lives like Jacob and like Joseph. We want the words that we sang earlier today about our posture in death to be true. That no matter when you take us, whether it's in two days or two years or two decades, or multiple decades from now, you'll find us at that time still praising you and still reaching out by faith to claim your promises. Oh, Father, I praise you for sending us the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, your divine son, who lived the life that we should have lived and didn't, who died the death that we deserved and who rose powerfully from the dead. Oh, Father, if there's someone here Lord, who's still clinging desperately to their own sense of autonomy, help them to see that that facade is a sham. Help them to see it's a mirage that's going to vaporize in an instant in eternity. And help them to run to the king. The king who came and the king who is coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.